What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined once again by my man, Brandon and Cruz. Brandon, thank you for being back. Uh, we have quite a bit to catch up on, dude. I know you had the PC going on this last week, which unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, I was. we had the team retreat, which was incredible, but I'm excited to hear about that. So fill us in, man. How has your last week, couple weeks been going here since we talked? Yeah, it's been about two weeks, I think, since we connected, at least on a podcast por- uh, format, because mm-hmm. you and I speak quite often. But um, yeah, so I actually just returned home a couple days ago from Tampa. I had a little bit of issues with my flights, uh, a lot of cancellations, and uh, things got pushed back a little bit. But all in all, my travel is always fucked, to be honest with you. However, the trip in and of itself, you know, in terms of... You know, I went to Tampa where I attended and was part of the presentation panel of the seventh annual uh, Physique Education Collective, which was hosted by my man, Jeff Black, Jeff Sue, and Jason Theobald of the Excellence Cartel. And overall, the entire weekend was a huge success. Um, Both my presentation and then the seminar weekend as a whole was incredible. And, And honestly, we've only been back a few days and we've gotten a ton of positive feedback about it. So we're actually already in the process of planning and brainstorming PC8, which is going to go back to Nashville. So hopefully, okay. I'm going to tell you the date as soon as I get it. I want you out there. Uh, I'll make sure it I happens. Myself, Anthony, Jeff Hone had an incredible time last year at, at Nashville in June. We're not sure of a time period. But um, yeah, so as far as the PC went, um, on Friday, I had the honor of kicking off the seminar. So generally, how we do this is often I will uh, be the opening speaker. And um, A, because I'm good at doing things early. In the morning. Luckily, this was in the afternoon <laughs> for Friday, but also because you know I have a lot of uh, energy, you know, in terms of my presentation. I'm really passionate when I when I speak about something, especially the topic in which I spoke on, which was you know my entire presentation and my topic was on optimizing insulin sensitivity and blood glucose management for improving body composition and health outcomes. And Jeremiah, you know this personally, but um, I shared this with the audience. Uh, the reason I'm so big into blood glucose monitoring is because uh, my father died of diabetes related complications. And um, this was something that, you know, he was already suffering. He had already had type two diabetes for years. Even when I was a child, uh, it eventually spiraled into metabolic syndrome, which led to a heart attack, open heart surgery. It led to chronic kidney disease where he eventually got put on dialysis and then eventually dementia and Alzheimer's. And so it's this degradative process where, you know, insulin resistance can have so many downstream effects. So really when we look at like the, um, the recent literature on the impacts from other mortality indices that insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes impacts diabetes and type or type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance impacts between 8 to 9 of the top 10 leading causes of death in the US and so yeah. within that being stated like it's a root cause of a lot of things or it's a contributing factor so really towards the latter portion of my father's life I got really interested in blood glucose management I was obviously trying to help him with his own you know um treatment, both from a lifestyle perspective, as well as a medication perspective. However, it was a little bit too late. So I always say, if I knew then what I know now, maybe I would have been able to change the trajectory of his life. And I try not to put that on me in terms of a a liability perspective or a responsibility perspective, or even a guilt perspective. But I always say like, it's a driving force. When I dive into these topics, I'm really driven from an intrinsic perspective. So it really, like I'm going through the research, like you cannot imagine. So my presentation initially was 63 slides. I got it down to 42. You know what I mean? But that was a stretch to say the least, but it was an incredible presentation. Um, Obviously I've gotten a lot of good feedback on it. Um, We've been getting, they did an anonymous questionnaire and uh, mine is one of the top rated ones of the weekend, which is an incredible honor, especially considering, you know, the panel that was, was there, but then, you know, from there, I opened up the session essentially. And then towards the end of the day, so I opened it up and then I had the honor of not only bringing 
Alan Aragon to this presentation, but also doing an introduction. I was able to inform the audience the impact that he's had on my career and introduce him to the audience the first time that we've had this because Alan was essentially our special guest speaker of the weekend. Um, right. And being one of my original mentors, it was just a, a really good moment for us. And so after he presented, um, we actually did a audience Q&A, which I hosted. And so it was essentially Alan, myself, and Aaron, who is a coach um, from Relentless Forever, which is a company that Jeff Black owns. And pretty much what we did was, you know, Alan and I pretty much went back and forth tackling the audience questions for around 90 minutes, uh, which I got to say was an awesome experience because I'm someone that I really love hearing the feedback. That's why I like doing these Q and A's with you. Like we're able to bounce right. ideas off each other. We learn throughout the process of informing and, and teaching others. And I think there's so much value to that. And we were able to cover a ton of topics, uh, deliver a lot of value, and then also in person exchange our own thoughts and interpretations on what not only we've seen in the research, but what we've seen in our own coaching practices. So we were exchanging stories live and in person. And and people, you know, within the audience said that they got a lot of utility out of that because we were combining, like I always say, I'm trying to bridge the gap between research and information and practical application. And what a lot of people forget, yes, Alan spent the last 10 years in the ivory tower doing research, but 20 right. years before that, I mean, he was a coach, he, you know, he's coached stone called Steve Austin, so many other athletes throughout the years. So he has a lot of uh, in the trenches experience. And then, you know, the whole weekend went incredible, but I got to say, if we're going over highlights, man, I, I got the pleasure of going out to dinner with both him and another mentor of mine, which is Dr. Scott Stevenson on Saturday night. Which oh, was yeah. So that's, that's good company. No, absolutely, man. So what ended up happening was Scott is originally from Tampa. He's moved out since then. And we decided to go to, he invited me to go to his favorite sushi restaurant. So what I thought would be like a one to two hour dinner ended up being a four hour dinner. We pretty much closed out the, the sushi buffet. And, um, I, I got to tell you, we spent the entire night covering every nutrition, training, supplementation, and business-related topic that you could think of. And I've been studying under both of them for more than a decade. Like I have messages with Alan from 2006 and Scott from like 2010. So they've had an immense impact on not only my knowledge, my critical thinking skills, but also the trajectory of my career. So to be able to you know, not only go out with them, exchange stories, really interact and get to know them more on a personal level rather than on just a mentorship level. Because a lot of times when we would do consultations where I would interact with them, it was about knowledge. It was about, hey, you know, I'm having an issue interpreting this piece of research, or it was really question-based, right. like just like we would on a consultation with a client. However, it was really good to not only see them as the teacher this time, but also as a colleague, because we were working on a project together. And, um, you know, it was an incredible experience to be able to have both of them in person, because I've met Scott several times, uh, but I have yet to meet Alan in person. So to be able to bring him out there, spend you know the entire weekend with him, and then also had that dinner, just us three, um, was an incredible experience. So overall, man, PC7 was a huge success. We're already looking forward to the, number, the, the next one. Hell yeah, man. That makes me so happy to hear. I'm super happy for you that you got to have that experience. I imagine that has to be one of those moments. I think that these moments are few and far between, but there are a couple moments where you just like look around. Like I feel like every couple of years, every year or so, and it's like, holy shit, it's crazy that they're like, this is where I'm at. Is that kind of how that felt for you? It has to feel like I've done a lot of work to get here. And well, it's not, that just had to be such a cool and kind of validating experience for you. Yeah. Uh, honestly, it's kind of hard to encapsulate um, because I have been at this for so long, but it's also really good to see. So I, I've been working in the fitness industry for 14 years, but then we we always have to realize that we are still beginners. And I always take this, uh, it's a Zen mindset, which is essentially the beginner's mind. 
And so this right. comes from Buddhist ideology. And we're always a beginner. We're this white belt mentality you can learn from everyone. But really, when it comes down to someone like Scott or someone like Alan that have 30 plus years in this industry, you really can learn from these individuals. And for them to open up and, and be able to ride me with some personal insights, some advice, and then also just... uh Honestly, they've seen me grow for so long. So they gave me criticisms. They gave me feedback, especially positive feedback about the trajectory that they've seen in my my career and uh, certain things that we're really happy to see that I've been able to do and that they were proud of me for. And it, it meant a lot because I've worked extremely hard to get to where I am today, but also it provided me, and I'm not big into motivation. We've talked about this, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. more, I'm more reliant on discipline, but uh, it did give me some internal motivation and uh, validation to keep pushing and continue my education and continue pushing in every aspect, just to be a better, not only a better coach, a better mentor, a better friend, um, but also a better, um, yeah, I don't know what other way to describe it, but I guess role model, uh, just to be a better influence on people within this industry, because really what it is, is about leaving a legacy and having a positive impact. And I will say that, you know, I hope to God that both Scott and Alan are here for forever. However, I right. do know that the things they've taught me will be passed on. And that's that ripple effect that I always talk about in coaching. So I often give them and attribute, you know, credit to them for what they've taught me. And I know that by me being able to redistribute some of the information that I've gotten from them, or even it's more so a lot of times they, they help me with my interpretation skills. So it wasn't like I asked them a direct question. I've told you this often. Mm -hmm. It's more so they changed my ability to interpret things for myself. So now it's not just giving, you know, a man a fish it's teaching them to fish so that they can keep going back to the well and continue, you know, feeding themselves essentially metaphorically. And so they've given me the ability or helped me with the ability to interpret research, to apply it to clients, to, um, isolate variables to gauge, you know, the actual objective project uh, progress that someone is making from one intervention. And then also to separate the signal from the noise, which is really important, especially from a coaching perspective. And that's also really helped me from um, being able to pass on education because it's allowed me to really focus on not only the nuances, but really like the basics we need to nail and then layering in right. other more complicated and more complex um, strategies, methods that really will make a difference. But after the foundation has been laid. So it was incredible. It's it's funny. I had a conversation with Eric Helms last night um, and he shared with me his first experience when he got brought up on a panel with Alan, who was a mentor to him and how he felt. And it was a very similar um, relatability between the two of us. And he shared in that moment. So he knew where I was coming from, but it definitely is a, a very motivating um, experience to say least, but it also keeps me you know, grounded in the sense that I'm, I'm where I need to be, but I still need to keep pushing because there's another level to this. Absolutely, man. That's incredible. And again, I'm super happy for you, dude. It's been cool to see the progression of this, even in like the last year, year and a half. I feel like it's seen so much. Like I've seen you continue to grow so much. I don't, I haven't known you really in the grand scheme of things all that long, but it's been cool. Just a short amount of time that we have been acquainted to see just how much you've grown. So super cool, man. Um, yeah. From our end, yes, great last, I'm excited. Great last week here, dude. Uh, had the team out. Uh, everybody got here Thursday night. Everybody took off on Sunday. So, man, it was it was great. Really a lot of just making sure we are all on the same page, laying out first, like where everybody wants to go individually in the next 90 days, year, three years, 10 years, kind of laying out the big picture for our company and making sure we were all on the same page there, which I think is, I think is a very powerful thing. Like one of the things I've noticed is like, and I'm continually trying to be more intentional about with the team is making sure that I think it's so easy to get into like, you just have your head down, everybody's working and everybody's 
managing clients and things of that nature and not bringing it back to like, what's the bigger picture and are we all still on the same page, right? Am I doing everything I can to support where you want to go and make sure that she, like this supports like whatever, like you want your life to turn into your career to be like, I want to support that however I can. So, I mean, we came out of the weekend having so much more clarity on like everyone's roles, not just like where we're at now, but where everyone wants to go. So I feel like I have so much better of an idea of, because it's not, I don't ever want it to seem like, although like I was the first coach in our company, it's very much our company, right? It's never like, Hey, this is my company. And then these are like my employees are very much all peers. Everyone is incredible coaches on our team. And it's, I want it to support all of us equally. So I feel like that was incredible for me to kind of get a very clear direction of that. And also for everyone there to realize, like, I I want you to voice these things. I want you to share these things and make sure like we can, so we can start moving in that direction. So that was great. Got to just spend a lot of quality time, um, just training with everyone. We went and visited an incredible gym here. We got a session in, in the garage. We got to actually meet up with a good amount of our clients here in the Phoenix area, which was super cool as well. Just got to meet up with everyone for coffee. Um, so yeah, man, it was, it was a great weekend. I'm very happy with how it went. I'm always so nervous going into things like that with my ability to lead and just facilitate because it's, it is a lot of, there's a lot of just team bonding, just hanging out and things of that nature. But also there is a lot of like, what's the direction. And again, like that, that is always something that I'm, I'm always nervous about my ability to lead, but it seems like they just keep getting going better and better every time. So I couldn't be happier with how it went, man. And it was a great weekend. Dude, I'm so pumped to hear that. And I do want to acknowledge something. And uh, this is something I've shared with you personally before, but um, I do want to hit on something we haven't really discussed. And it's the fact that I mentor a lot of other coaches. I've mentored you and and Andy, and I've seen your team grow over the past few years. Mm -hmm. And first of all, it's an incredible accomplishment what you've been able to do, both as an individual coach, then as a leader in and of itself. But also, I think the biggest differentiating factor that I see with you, and it's not that I don't have other mentees that share this, but I will say there's a big differentiation with what I see with you and, and many other coaching teams, you know, in comparison is that you have made this not about Jeremiah's vision. This is in Jeremiah's company. And it really is just like I say with you, when we go over client check-ins, like you check in with me, this is a collaborative effort. Coaching right. is a collaboration. This is a partnership. This is you and I bouncing ideas off of each other, really um, trending towards a certain trajectory. And I'm a guide. I'm not a dictator. And you're the same way with right. your company, which is amazing because a lot of times within the coaching space, the reason where there's why there's so much turnover, both internally as well as with clientele. So what I mean by that, a lot of times you'll see coaching teams and they'll run through coaches, meaning that they'll hire, fire, mm-hmm. hire, fire, or they have a big drop-off rate, which you don't have first and foremost. And then second of all, same thing with their clientele. So it's this top-down approach where you know the habits or the lack of, I guess, congruency within the team as a whole rubs off into the clientele. And what you have is a great unified team, which everyone is happy to be a part of, but also realizes that they're a partnership within it. And that's something I really value about what you do. And, and I got to say the same thing about my partner at Chasing Clarity, which is you know Jeff Black, which is why I do business with him in, mm-hmm. in other aspects, is that he's a great leader, but he realizes, and he always says this, this is not my company. It's not my right. name. This is why I didn't name it, you know, Jeff Unbreakable Black. This is Relentless Forever or it's Iron House Gym. It is an extension of me and I care for it, but we all care for it like it's our, our child. And we're all mutually invested into this. And we all have, you know, a similar vision, but maybe a different means to get there. So it's not that you and the rest of your team are right. Like your goals are exactly the same, but as a total, as a collective, as a totality, you guys are moving in the same direction towards a unified goal, which is a beautiful thing because as a leader, you and a leader in and of itself, you're helping your teammates and your coaches 
um, reach their own personal goals, but then they're also contributing to the overall goal of your your entire team, which you know it's it's really good to see, and it's something that is unfortunately lacking in this industry, but it's something you've done really well. So I'm proud of you for the growth that you've shown within being a leader and then also growing this company. Thank you, man. That means a lot, and I feel like a lot of that too is just built off of anxiety of things not working out that way. It's always it's interesting to me. I have a lot of conversations where. Um, a lot of new clients have had experiences in the past where they have signed up with a coaching team and it, it sounds like essentially like whoever they were on the initial call with, like assigned them to a different coach. And it was like, this is a completely different experience than like how I would have expected it to be. And that's like very much like one thing I love about our team is you're going to be paired with truly whoever's the best fit to help you. But everyone on our team, like we have hours of calls every single week just to devoted to working through everyone's client issues right and then alongside that every single day within the slack we're going back and forth constantly around like hey well this is my approach to how i think i'm going to start this client what do you guys think right what do you guys think about the way i'm approaching programming where it's so collaborative like we all know exactly what's going on with everyone else's clients we can name everyone else's clients like and i think that's that's something that's lost but that's something that i appreciate so much about our team as well as like i'm constantly going to andrea and natalie and julie like guys, I'm working through like, how, how would you approach a situation? Like what's, what's your insights? Because of like, Andrea, you may be, you may be better versed in this than I am. And I think it's, it can be such a valuable thing, but I'm always, it's always interesting to see like how much that's lost. So I really appreciate it, man. That means a lot. Absolutely. And I think it's really valuable for you to admit that. And I always say this, and we've had this conversation on this podcast off air um, as well. Coaches need coaches. We also need a mentorship group. So I am never ashamed to admit that I learned from someone else or that I have a group of people that I bounce ideas off of because that's how we grow. And right. the issue in a lot of times in this industry is someone wants to be the no, the be all end all or the end all be all in terms of knowledge, in terms of being the coach of coaches or whatever it may be, not realizing that we always get further when we do things together. So it's not that you have to have an entire team doing everything for you. Like we know some coaching right. teams where people are actually, you know, um, you know, sub, you know, outletting, you know, their <laughs> yeah. programming and someone else is doing it for your you. coach isn't who you think is your coach. Exactly. So someone's ghost coaching you. However, it is good to, and I have a group of mentors that I bounce ideas off of on a constant basis because, you know, I may be missing something or I may have a stopgap in the system, or I might just not have experience with this. And either I'm going to refer that client out to someone within my network, or I'm going to consult someone within my network to learn that skill. So I can not only apply it to that client in of itself, but also to the other clients that I get in a similar position or who I encounter a similar situation with in the future. And that's how we all learn and continue to progress. Absolutely, man. Cool. All right. Let's get into some questions here. We have a habit of taking these too long. I think on our coaches, last coaches roundtable, we got into one question. So let's go ahead and get yeah. into today. We have a training focused Q&A and I'm excited to kind of bring the themes back. I know for a while we were doing training Q&As, nutrition Q&As. And today we do what we are back to a more training focused Q&A. So I'm going to kick the first question over to you, which is if an exercise is programmed at a rep range of six to eight reps, should I add weight when I can get more than eight reps? All right. So when it comes to rep ranges and how we should go about progression, if you're currently doing sets where the rep range is 68 reps, as you said, for say three sets, and you mm -hmm. get to the point in a mesocycle where you're able to do all three sets of that weight for eight reps, I generally say to add load in your next session and continue working in that um, six to eight rep range so that you can continue the progression and ensure that you're in, in a good proximity to failure. But if you don't, like for instance, if you don't have load, if you are stuck in a home gym and you don't have enough increments or you don't feel comfortable going to the next load, 
If you don't add load in that exercise, you could just continue adding reps and going beyond the six to eight rep range. So the week after that you hit those three sets, you know, the three sets of eight and essentially have hit that cap, what you would do is you could look to just add reps. So that could be like hitting nine reps, nine reps, and eight reps in that next session for that same body part. And in both cases, as long as you're progressing in either load or reps and challenging yourself, you're going to get very similar growth as long as long as in both cases, you're going close to failure. And there was actually a, a recent study when this question popped up, I, I really thought about it, that pretty much perfectly answers this question. And um, in terms of should we load, should we progress with load or should we progress with reps or what is superior? And it was a, a recent study that came out a few months ago out of Brad Schoenfeld's lab. And what they did was they looked at different models of incorporating progressive overload where one group progressed their training stimulus by increasing the amount of reps per set they did while using the exact same load in the entire training study. And so what they did was the entire training study, they used the same load, just progress reps, but they used the same exercises week in and week out, same load week in and week out, while the other group focused on remaining in the same rep range, which I believe was eight to 12, and they, that they started with, and they just progressed load week to week. In both cases, they trained using the same amount of sets per week, so it was volume equated, but also the same proximity to failure. So it was not only volume, but effort equated. And the results of this study found that the progressive overload uh, via increasing reps was as effective for increasing hypertrophy as progressive overload via increasing load in trained individuals, as both approaches achieved similar increases in muscle growth, except for one body part. So what they did see, or one region, and what they did see was for the rec fem of the quadriceps, uh, muscle growth modestly favored the group that increased reps on a weekly basis. Now, when it came to muscular strength outcomes, the uh, group that it slightly favored in terms of better results was the load group, which makes sense as the load group was the one that continued to increase load week to week or on a consistent basis, at least. Whereas the rep group used the same week or the same weight for the entire training period, but both groups gained strength. So there wasn't a major difference. And when you really think about it, this makes sense because we've seen in so many you know, um, areas of study or so many areas in the literature that we can get equivalent or at least very similar increases in muscle growth training between a variety of rep ranges from say like five to six reps all the way up to 30 reps per set, as long as each set is taken relatively close to failure and the number of sets you do is equated. So seeing as we can get, you know, the same increases in hypertrophy from say three sets of eight and three sets of 20, if they're both taken close to failure, it makes sense that we can progress our training stimulus by either increasing load and staying within a lower rep range or by maintaining load and increasing the amount of reps we do to ensure we're hitting a close enough proximity to failure. So I think in this case, you should really go with the method or the approach that you can consistently execute on, you have access to, and also you enjoy doing. So if you're the type of individual that you are limited in a home gym, so you're limited in terms of your loading capacity, you can continue to progress via reps. If you're someone that has full access to um, you know, heavier loads, you can increase via load. But really when it comes down to it, a progression model isn't about just load or just reps. It, it doesn't need to be one or the other. It could be a combination right. of the two. And it's just about consistently progressing that stimulus over time. As your body adapts and is capable of doing more, you have to continually do more to uh, hit that threshold needed for further adaptation. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the beauties, the beauties of hypertrophy training is it is like you hear people often say it's a very forgiving adaptation. There's a lot of things we can do we can have two programs that look quite different as far as like loads used rep ranges and still get a very, very similar outcome. Um, so for example, I think kind of what they may be asking within this is let's say you're doing three sets of six to eight 
first set, let's say, and let's say you're using 135. Okay. First set, you can get nine. Let's say second set, you get seven, six. So in that case, would you like, Hey, next week set one, maybe we increase load and then like start working with that load. Or are you waiting until all three of those sets surpass eight before you add load? I don't, I personally don't go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So it it could be either or honestly, you could do, um, like a different progressive overload scheme. Generally I like double progression. So that means when all say we're doing three sets and the rep range is six to eight, when all three sets get to eight reps and you are able, you know, that you're capable of doing more. That's when I would add load and then restart Mm -hmm. that progression. But at the same time, if you're exceeding that rep range and you're still progressing and say that you are trying to hit zero reps in reserve, and now you've hit nine, 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 you can continue increasing that to just make sure to ensure that you're staying within that proximity of failure. If you realize that eight is one rep in reserve, but your RRR target is zero, then you need to go to nine, you know, or whatever you are capable of to hit zero reps in reserve. Yeah. That's typically what I tell clients as well. It doesn't really matter. Just hit your RAR target and go with your preference. So if it's like, Hey, I'm bumping up against 10 reps and like maybe my second two sets. And I will sometimes, a lot of it depends on the movement, right? If it's like, man, my first set, I don't want to have to go over 10 reps on this. That just sounds whatever that's going to get, it's going to start to feel like cardio. Then maybe my first set, I will go a bit heavier. And then if needed, peel off just a bit of weight and still continue to, of course, work within those rep ranges, hit my RR targets on the following sets. But okay, absolutely. Yeah, um, I think, next, up, I think really when ahead. it comes down to it, we have to just consider that rep ranges are essentially arbitrary. As long as it's right. between six and 30 reps, there is no magic rep range. So we used right. to have this like fallacy within rep ranges where there was the strength continuum, one to five reps. And then there was a the hypertrophy continuum. And it was only eight to 12. And then anything from 15 plus reps was like muscular endurance. You know what I mean? Or you were just doing like cardio with weights. And we see, and now all the updated literature and even with meta-analysis and reviews that Schoenfeld has done on the strength and and hypertrophy continuum in terms of rep ranges, we can get pretty much equivalent outcomes. But then it comes down to really considerations within a person's psychological preferences or personal preferences, their ability to get to the target reps in reserve or target proximity of failure. So for instance, if this was a question and someone said, hey, you know, I'm getting to my target rep range is 20 to 25 reps. I'm starting to hit 25 reps, but I'm noticing that my ability to get beyond that is not due to the fact that, you know, what my limiting factor in getting beyond that is not the load being used because it's very light. It's actually the peripheral fatigue that I feel, or it's the cardiometabolic fatigue. It's these other limiting factors beyond be, besides the muscle itself is when we have to say, all right, well, that would be a better option to go load because you're actually not hitting your target proximity to failure. You're really just right. getting fatigued. However, in lower rep ranges, we generally don't accumulate that metabolite buildup, those lactate, that uh, hydrogen ions, things like that sort. So it's not really of you know a, a big issue within that, but also we can consider movement. So if it is a lateral raise and you're in 68, I, I wouldn't program personally uh, lateral raise movements within the 68 rep range, but those are movements we're going to see just based on what we have options for. So say we're doing a dumbbell lateral, that's where I would really look to progress more in terms of reps per set throughout the course of a mesocycle. Whereas with something like a hack squat or an RDL variation, something like that, I may stick stick within that six to eight rep range. However, just continue progressing load week to week as I exceed my capabilities within that six to eight rep range, instead of going beyond that, just simply increasing load to continue being able to hit that target proximity to failure. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I very much... When I'm looking at rep ranges that that we're assigning, I'm much more focused for the most part, I'm much more focused on 
like per this exercise, again, what's going to be the best fit? Like to that example, if we're doing like a set of hack squats and we're doing 20 plus reps, like, unless it's just, I want to make this person's life terrible. I'm probably not going to go that even like 15 to 20. I mean, there could be, I do like, like, again, like maybe we're doing a couple like top sets and back off sets, I guess. I don't know if that's necessarily the correct terminology, but like two sets, like I know for me personally, like I have with my uh, pendulum right now, two sets of seven mm-hmm. to 10, two sets of 10 to 15. That's a structure that I also really like, like the push to heavier low, the first couple sets really get a good kind of a little bit more metabolic stimulus, a little bit more of a quad pump, those last couple sets as well. But yeah, um, I think we're pretty aligned there. Okay. Next up. So we have, do you think a muscle can be effectively trained with just one exercise or do we need to do multiple exercises? All right. So within this, I think there's a couple different ways we could approach this. I think it depends on if you are looking to get absolutely as much as possible. It depends on how much we're wanting to develop the tissue, right? So for example, with a lot of, a lot of women that I work with, and I think this came up on a recent podcast that we, we discussed something similar. I won't program. So I will program, for example, like just a movement that's really going to be much harder in the lengthened range, right? So think like a dumbbell chest press, for example, where typically like within this client, they're not too focused on maximizing like their pec hypertrophy and their pec development where just for overall balance, joint health, things of that nature. I want to make sure we're still including, we're still training the tissue and it can contribute to your physique as well. Then I'm looking at, we do, there seems to be a good amount of research telling us that, Hey, we're going to probably get the most out of movements that are going to be the most difficult in the lengthened or stretch position. So that's going to be like, if I'm choosing something, that's going to be what I'm focused on the most. That said again, like, I think for maximal development, I think we're probably going to want to go with at least, so like if we look at the quad, for example, right. And we're looking at, okay, so I'm training my quad in like a hack squat, but we know, Hey, that's not going to be training our rec fem as well. So that's not going to be able to develop or even like this. That's the thing is we kind of have to get down into subdivisions of the different, of different muscles, right? Because then if we're looking at your glutes, then it's like, okay, well, we could really train the glute max well with like this let's say like a leg press on RDL, but then we have the glute med where we really want to maximize the development of that. So I would say like, if you're chasing the best development, I was going to break this down, like more length into short end, which I don't think is actually, the, but then there's the regional hypertrophy side of things as well. <laughs> but this is actually turning into a lot more rab- a rabbit hole than I thought. I know that's a little bit more up in the air, but if I'm correct, the thinking is like movements that are going to be harder in the length or stretch position are typically going to develop the muscle more in the distal range and the, towards the distal attachment yes, and then muscles the, in further correct. away from the joint. So think like your hamstrings, think like your hamstrings closer to where they attach the knee and then muscles that overload and short or think like your hamstrings closer to where they attach around your glute. So I would still say like for best development, man, that's a lot more nuanced question. I, you can get good development, right? So I think if it's like, Hey, this muscle group isn't a priority, I would just focus for the most part. Like it's perfectly fine to train that in the, in the lengthened range, but like for the best overall development, we probably want something that's going to be training the muscle, like through its entire contractile range. So probably something that's biasing the lengthened range a little bit more and something that's biasing the short range a little bit more. But again, I would focus more on that lengthened side of things. And I, the thing is you can take this too far to where it's like, now I have 70 different movements that I have to do in my training week to train everything. Right. So I don't think that we need to take that in like every training phase. I need to train lengthen, shorten for every single tissue. I think there's like a couple of priorities and that's what we're focusing on. Now I am 
personally within programming, this is a shift for me in the last like year or two where I would much rather we focus on fewer movements per body part and just getting really focused on mastering those, getting the best output. Like if we can keep a training session to like five to anywhere from four to four to six movements rather than like getting to like seven to nine movements and just getting the best possible output, the best quality tension within those movements. I generally think that's a more effective approach, but I would say like to maximally develop most any muscle group, we're probably going to want to have more than one movement there. Yeah. I think this is more of a complex question than even the listener who addressed it even meant by it. And so when it really comes down to it, we can look at it from like a continuum. We can have, what is the minimum effective dose? And that's something I'm not going to cover today. You know what I mean? Yes. You know, when it really comes down to it, I think we can get a good amount of growth using just one exercise per muscle group. And like Jeremiah hit on, if we were going to just utilize, we were limited to either time constraint or there was a time efficiency thing, or even you weren't prioritizing certain muscle groups. So you were doing a specialization cycle and you were not prioritizing certain muscles. We would just, I, I would personally just program if I was limited and that client only wanted to do one exercise per week, uh, per muscle group in a, in say two or three muscles, I would use a lengthened focus or lengthened overload, um, movement and just utilize one. It, but here's the whole thing when it comes down to it, you know, these are very, um, specific circumstances. So we actually covered like the minimum effective dose of training on the last Q and a that we did. So if you guys refer mm-hmm. back two weeks from, from this episode, having come out, you will be able to hear all our answers on what is the minimum you know, effective dose when it comes to training and the different considerations around it in terms of how to approach it. If you're trying to get good gains, but you're you're kind of truncated in terms of either your time in the gym, your ability to recover, or it's just not your main focus right now. And you have other things and you got to kind of put training on the back burner, but you still want to make gains. But I'm going to take it more from the same maximizer or op- optimizing muscle growth. And I do think that when it comes to maximizing hypertrophy, that there is a greater benefit from util- from utilizing multiple exercises per muscle. Really, when it comes down to it, using multiple exercises per muscle within a program allows us to incorporate exercises that emphasize both the lengthened range and others that emphasize the shortened range, which can help with getting better regional hypertrophy, as you were alluding to. And this is because when we really look at it, like different exercises that target the same muscle can produce different outcomes in terms of regional hypertrophy. So what I tend to do within my own programming and when programming for clients is I'll program multiple exercises to bias different portions or regions of a muscle, such as, you know, a good example of this or an easy example of this is say utilizing an incline press to bias the upper pec fibers, whereas utilizing like a flatter sternal press to target the middle fibers. And then we also see that there's a ben- there's an actual benefit when we look head to head from utilizing multiple exercises per week as compared to just utilizing one exercise per week, even in the research. And I really want to make this caveat. This isn't like super exercise variation. So I'm not, I'm not chasing novelty with these things. And this is another thing that we covered in the last podcast we did. This is simply saying that we're utilizing multiple exercises per muscle within a mesocycle structure or within, you know, a training program. It doesn't mean that every week we're changing, but consistently say that in this specific example, I'm going to go over study. Um, they utilize you know, it was a study by Costa that came out a couple of years ago. And really what this compares is utilizing the same exercises week to week in terms of picking three exercises for a muscle group as compared to picking one exercise and utilizing that type of format throughout the entire course of the study. So within this study, and I think this is a great example of the benefits 
in terms of utilizing multiple exercises for a muscle as compared to just one exercise for muscle, they essentially took two groups and they split them into a varied and non-varied exercise group. And both groups trained full body three times a week over the course of the study. Now, the biggest difference between groups was the exercise selection they used within each group. So in the varied group, in each of the three weekly sessions that they completed, they target a muscle utilizing a different exercise. Whereas in the non-varied group, they use the same exercise in all three of the weekly sessions. So for example, if they were hitting chest, this probably looked something like this, where it was like, for the varied exercise group, they did a flat press in workout one, maybe an incline press in workout two, and then a decline press in workout three. And so every day they had a structured exercise, you know, um, pretty much allocated towards the muscle group, but it was a different exercise. However, in the non-varied group, they would hit their chest with a flat press only all three sessions throughout the week. So every day that they hit their chest, it was utilizing the same movement. And by the end of the study, they found that both groups experienced muscle growth, but those in the varied exercise group were the only ones who experienced significant growth in every site measured. So they got more region, like um, significant regional hypertrophy, meaning all heads of each muscle experienced growth rather than just biasing growth towards one section or one region of a muscle group. And kind of like you were talking about, I think another consideration when it comes to exercise choice, exercise selection, is we also need to consider how we should train biarticulate muscles. So that would be things like the quadriceps, the hamstrings, which are muscles that act on multiple joints. So like you were mentioning, you know, and you kind of got to it and, and didn't finish, you know, your thought on it, but really when it comes down to it, say we wanted to properly chain the quad. We know that a squat variation provides an overall great quad growth stimulus, but if we wanted to properly like you know, specifically target the rec then we wanted to use a movement that primarily involves knee extension. So that's where we would utilize and we would add to the program a leg extension. So overall, I think in most cases, you'd benefit from doing at least two to three movements per muscle per week, rather than just relying on one exercise to maximize muscle growth. And really when it comes down to it, when I think about these questions and it's like an either or scenario, it's like, why choose? If you have the option right. to do more, except if you're, you know, if there are certain limitations in terms of you're in a home gym and you only have access to you know, a barbell and a squat setup or something, and you're very limited, then I understand really trying to get the most bang for your buck. So if it was your only option you have is either, you know, a leg machine to buy for your home gym or a squat rack, I would tell you, let's, let's utilize a squat pattern and, and really overload the length and to get more, you know, overall growth for that and a better stimulus. However, we have, most of us go to commercial gyms or have, you know, a good amount of equipment that we have access to. So we might as well take advantage and utilize it to maximize muscle growth rather than, you know, kind of trying to get everything, you know, every bang for your buck with one exercise. And often what I really see that happening is people are trying to be more time efficient, you know, so they only want to warm up for one exercise, which is all well and good in short truncated periods, but often that leads to overuse patterns first and foremost, like psychological burnout. If you're doing, say you're trying to progress the stimulus on a squat pattern. Now you're, you know, say you're trying to hit your quads with 10 weekly sets per week, you know, and you keep trying to progress that, you know, 10 becomes 11, 12, so on and so forth. You're going to be really tired of squats by the end of this program. So I think we have to do it both from what is best for optimizing hypertrophy from a regional perspective, from a, a different muscle uh, group and, and different region perspective, but also from just like a psychological perspective. What, you know, are you going to want to do the same movement if you're training a body part? Like right now, Jeremiah, I have you training chest three times a week. I told you you're going to mm -hmm. do the same, your same um, exercise every single week. 
you know, three sessions a week, eventually you're going to get burnt out on it. And you're going to, it's, it's not only that you get burnt out on it psychologically, but it's also your buy-in is going to decrease. So your ability to really transfer and, and put in, put your all in and really hit those targeted rep ranges and those proximities to failure and your reps and reserve targets is going to be diminished. So we have to think about it from a, a multifactorial type of uh, approach. Yeah, absolutely. I again think the the one area where this like becomes a negative is when you're trying to do this with all muscle groups all the time, where I do think it's you need to pick and choose your battles again, like decipher what are the priorities and what is not so much. And again, like be okay with not necessarily things being on the back burner. Also understanding like newer clients can like grow with a much smaller dose. And again, like we oftentimes you'd have to be okay with like, hey, we're not able to train every different division of your lat and your pec, like with the perfect, and that's like, I, I again think that there's a lot more awareness around like we have the iliac lat and the lumbar lat and the thoracic lat. So thus do we need to have, and I think that again, it can be taken a little bit too far to where it's like, Hey, now your clients have all their sessions or two and a half hours just to target all these divisions. So just being wise with where you pick and choose your battles there, essentially. All right. Yeah, last one I we have. Go ahead. Yeah, I think with all things within uh, this space, we end up erring on ends of the extreme. So we have some people that will say just one exercise, um, and then there'll be others that will say, you need to use six or seven exercises. And it's like, guys, I really think we could strike a balance between the two, maybe two to three, maybe four, especially for the back, maybe four movements. And you can really optimize your outcomes and not have all this complexity or all this, you know, sometimes they make it a little bit too basic and rudimentary. And then sometimes they make it too complex and nuanced where it's like, you know, people are trying to set up their exercises and they're doing so many exercises that they're spending half their time in the gyms, just setting things up to be biomechanically advantageous. Yeah, absolutely. That's an entirely different conversation. But last one I have for you, I struggle to accurately gauge RIR in the beginning of a meso. Does this limit muscle growth? Yeah. So I, I think the topic of gauging RIR is something many experience um, and struggle with, uh, especially earlier on in their training careers. So I often encounter this with either newer clients that are newer in terms of their training age or someone that just has no experience or has very limited experience having utilized a progression model that utilizes reps and reserve or even RP. But we see that as that is more advanced trainees. We're more accurate with gauging their proximity to failure. And actually, if you look into the research on proximity to failure um, accuracy, we see that advanced trainees are generally, you know, when they're training to failure or trying to gauge their proximity to failure, they're usually within one rep of their RIR target. So if they're supposed mm-hmm. to be one rep in the reserve, they're within either two, they're at one or, or two. And sometimes they overshoot it and they're at zero instead of one. So it, it, there's a discrepancy between the two, but they're usually pretty on point. And so I think regardless um, of where you're starting or where you're at, it's important to realize gauging RIR in week one doesn't need to be perfect as that's just the start to a training cycle. So if we were to start you know, week one at say a three reps in reserve target, you should stop the set when you think you have three reps left, but the accuracy of that isn't what's most important. When it comes to programming, I usually will use like a descending RIR method. And this is something I've utilized with you yourself, Jeremiah, I use myself. And what I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to have a client get closer to failure each week of the mesocycle. So we use reps and reserve to set a baseline in week one. And then from there, we progress across the course of the mesocycle week to week. So the goal with reps and reserve, and I think this is something that a lot of people overlook is it's not about being perfect, especially within week one, especially if you're just starting on a mesocycle and you've changed out different movements and the structure of your, your training cycle or even your split is different. There's going to be some 
uh, acclimatization that needs to take place. There's going to be needs to be some um, introductory into these movements, into the setup of each session, as well as across the week. And really what it comes down to is the goal with reps and reserve is to ensure that each week of training is difficult and gets progressively more difficult so that your effort is increasing. So we don't need it to be perfect, especially in week one. We just need it to be challenging and stimulative, even in week one, which I think is where a lot of people go wrong. Because, you know, often, you know, I have these conversations that I also hear about them. I think a lot of people, like a lot of individuals hear the target of three reps in reserve for like the first week of a mesocycle. And they assume that's easy training, but three reps in reserve should be a challenge. It should still be challenging. And, you know, what you should see, and this is something I think a lot of people overlook and I get client videos sometimes where I'll see other people and they say, yeah, I'm training two to three reps in reserve and there's no velocity loss. What I mean by that, like if you're truly training with three reps in reserve and you're somewhat accurate, doesn't mean you're dead on, but if you're close to three reps in reserve, we should see that cause some velocity loss where your rep speed, uh, speed slows down prior to ending the set. And then from there, week to week, we just want to aim for progression. So we just want to get closer to the failure point from that, that point. So if you're doing three sets of say 10 to 15 in at a three reps in reserve in week one, what I would suggest is simply pick a weight that you could do 13 with uh, if taking a failure so that you'll hit at least 10 reps in week one and be within that proximity to failure target. And then from there, just continue to either add reps or add load across the mesocycle to ensure you're pushing yourself harder and getting closer to failure as each week in the mesocycle passes. So really when it comes down to it, it isn't about being perfect. And I don't think, especially within one week, like muscle growth is such a long process, arduous process, to be honest with you. And also we see that, you know, generally coaches are going to play it safe and we're going to say, Hey, listen, first week, your mesocycle go three or four reps in reserve. But honestly, if you really look into the data on reps in reserve and I actually on proximity to failure, and I'm not saying this to encourage people to train light or train, you know, um, I don't want to say soft, but train lightly. However, when we really look on the data on proximity to failure, you could really be like five to six reps in reserve and still stimulate hypertrophy. Is it going to be as stimulative as three or two or one reps in reserve? No. However, it's still going to stimulate the process of muscle growth. You're still going to be turning on the mechanistic underpinnings of muscle growth, which is the stimulation of muscle protein synthesis. So it's not that I would tell you to be inaccurate and not try at all. However, just realize that there is a safety net. And like we often say, hypertrophy is a forgiving stimulus, both in terms of reps, you know, proximity to failure in terms of volume allocation or your, you know, your volume ranges in terms of rep ranges, in terms of exercise selection, even, you know, Brad Schoenfeld just put out, uh, I believe it was a systematic review today where he looked at the differences between single joint and um, multi-joint movements for muscle hypertrophy. And they saw no um, significant differences between the two in terms of muscle hypertrophy. We see the same thing between machines and free weight movements. So we have so many options that you just, it's not about hitting, like, it's not about hitting a bullseye when we're looking at the target. It's about getting on the target in and of itself, and then getting more and more accurate and closer to that bullseye as we get, uh, as we progress across the mesocycle in and of itself. Yeah. That exact terminology used there where like hey it's not bullseye or bust is something we use frequently because i know um we've had this conversation with a good amount of clients where it's like oh shit i'm not realizing last week i wasn't perfectly on my rar targets was that did i just waste an entire week it's like no not at all we still got a good growth stimulus from that there's again it's just going into going into like you're training with the idea of progression in mind, right? A lot of new clients, especially because RIR, if you never use RIR, especially like your first, your first month, really, it will feel 
kind of foreign you won't be perfect at it and that's okay right where the very much it's like hey let's kind of establish a foundation week one and especially if you're like newer to the gym you will see these rapid progressions week to week regardless you're not gonna be able to no matter what like if you're especially if we're like it's a new movement that's a more complex movement and you're not a well-trained individual you're gonna see these rapid increases in the load you can use or the amount of reps you can do with any given load week to week regardless but it's very much like Hey, let's just go into this with a with the mindset of okay, every week I'm gonna try to push a little bit harder, right? I'm gonna try to add another rep or two with the same load. And if I feel like, hey, I'm supposed to hit two RR this week and I add another rep and it's man, that feels like it's still like I could do three to four more. Cool. Okay, you can continue to go, right? But eventually we'll hit the we'll get to the point where, okay, I hit failure. I know for sure I couldn't do another rep, and cool, we got there eventually, right? And then going forward, that we then we'll hit the point where we need to deload, and then going forward. You can look back and okay, so I know that I failed um, my zero RIR that before we deloaded was 13 reps. Okay, so if I maybe three RIR, I'm gonna aim for something like 10 to 11. I'm, maybe I'm gonna try to like add a rep after the deload relative to what I did the previous week, assuming like maybe we got a little bit stronger over this time frame. Cool, right? Where, yeah, you don't have to be too focused on did I nail this perfectly? As long as we go into every week with progression and we won't be able to progress every week either, right? There will be weeks where like, Hey, maybe you weren't able to add a load or add a rep. But again, if we go into mind with like over time, we're trying to do just a little bit more, push a little bit harder, you will get there and you will be still accruing a solid stimulus. So I think it's, I don't, I think it's something that people get a little bit too in their heads about where like, it's okay if we don't nail it perfectly, as long as there's still effort there. And again, you're pushing to progress over time and you're seeing progression over time, then you're still growing. No, absolutely. And I think this is kind of, you know, reps and reserve or the model of progression utilizing reps and reserve is a really good metaphor for all things within fitness, because I'm sure you encounter this as well, but I, I get a lot of individuals or a lot of coaching inquiries and clients that come to me that are very type A, which I love because that's who I am. However, they're very, sometimes they, they're their own worst enemy. They cause oh, a lot yeah. of stop gaps in the system due to paralysis by overanalysis. So when I say three reps in reserve or two reps in reserve, they really, like you, you said, bullseye or bust. And what we have to really realize is that hypertrophy is a spectrum. Muscle growth is, is essentially a spectrum. We're trying to get closer and closer to that target. However, instead of trying to aim for perfection, if we just aim for progression, you're going to consistently get better week in and week out. And you're also not going to have the mental strain on yourself, thinking that you need to be perfect. And really when it comes down to it in all facets and aspects of fitness, nutrition, training, all these entities that tie in together, uh, sleep, stress management, it's about consistency over intensity. So even in the, in the context of proximity to failure, which is literally a gauging of relative intensity, it's not about being perfect with it or taking it to the house each and every single set, every single week. It's about progressing in terms of our ability to show up both, you know, within our day-to-day -day lives, but also within the gym and realizing, Hey, this week I'm going to have to push it, but also taking those easy wins at the beginning of a mesocycle and really getting acclimated to the movement patterns, to the rep ranges, to our ability to push ourselves, but not push ourselves so much that we, we bury ourselves within that singular session, not thinking about the, the future. So often when I'm talking to clients about training, I often relate it back to their goals. So I, I'll do like this analogy between training and nutrition as long, long-term constructs or long-term, you know, processes. And really when it comes down to it, a lot of people come to me for fat loss. And I always say, listen, just like with training or, you know, just like with fat loss, I wouldn't put you, you know, you wouldn't go to your deepest deficit or your lowest, you know, tolerable amount of calories week day one 
week one of a, a dieting phase because you know that you wouldn't be able to sustain that. The same thing could be said about not only your reps and reserves. So I wouldn't start you out at zero reps and reserve week one of a mesocycle, but also I wouldn't expect you to be perfect you know, with three reps in reserve, just like I don't expect you to be 100% perfect with hitting your macros week one of a dieting phase or week one of our, right. our time working together. It's about getting consistent. It's about increasing accuracy over the course. And as we continue to get more acclimated to things and getting more proficient, both with training, both with nutrition, both with tracking, all of these entities, we're going to continue to make this a habit, make this a lifestyle. And just like you get better with tracking your food or, you know, hitting your steps or, you know, um, sleep, your sleep routine and managing your stress, the same thing's going to happen with training, engaging your proximity to failure. Often, like with my more advanced trainees, I don't have to worry about them being close or off on proximity to failure or hitting their reps and reserve target because they're going to auto-correct. If they miss it the session before, they're going to make up for it the next and make sure okay. that it, it's almost like um, it allows them to recalculate things. It's a learning experience rather than being something that holds them back. So in this person's case, when they were asking about, is this going to limit my muscle growth? I really encourage you to shift your mind Set, take a step back and realize that this is a long-term process. One session or one week of training is never going to make you jacked. It's not, never going to build a, a ton of tissue. However, it's also not going to lose a ton of tissue. And the same thing, you know, if you need some validation for that or something to ease your mind, think about the last time you deloaded. You cut your, your volume in, in half and you cut down your intensity. You probably went to four to five reps in reserve. You didn't lose muscle in that week. You maintain muscle and you just decrease fatigue. So really when we look at it in week one, if you did not hit your three reps in reserve and say you were four or five reps in reserve, you just didn't accumulate as much fatigue. And maybe that'll allow you to go maybe one week longer than this mesocycle, or you'll maybe overshoot the next week and it'll all balance itself out. But it's really about effort over time period rather than, you know, singular sessions and just worrying about hitting it within that one day and eventually burning out because you, you were so narrow-mindedly focused on this one session rather than the entire training cycle as a whole. Yeah. And this is very applicable to nutrition, fat loss as well. You put it as a lot of people are their own worst enemies. And we see that a lot as well, where, especially within our first few months working with new clients, it is so common that it is, this person is making incredible progress, but they feel like they're failing because they're not nailing things perfectly. And it's like over and over revisiting, like, Hey, I, I'm thinking of one client, um, who Julie's working with, where we're really like hammering down on this, this last week, where it's, you made incredible progress. Like even in this last week, she was, she like, she graded herself. We have like a grade yourself like a through F and she gave herself a D when it was like on paper, we accomplished the things we wanted, like greater losses, right? Where we wanted it to be. There's a very clear change in your progress pictures. You're progressing very well towards the goal, but she wasn't perfect with her macros or a couple days where she missed. And it's like, well, of course, like I so appreciate people being precise and nailing their targets. Like no coach is going to complain about that. But on the same token, so many people like burn out and quit, not because they actually have the inability to make progress, but because they think they're not perfect with it, they're failing. And it, it kind of pains me to say like, uh, I think that we're both kind of perfectionists. So I don't, it's hard to put out there like, yeah, it's, it's okay to not be perfect with it. But the reality is like, no matter what, we're not always going to be perfect with either of these things. And that's not what require, is required to make progress. But I think the thing that stops so many more people from getting to where they want to be isn't like their inability to measure these things accurately as it is. Again, that expectation that if I'm not perfect or that thought process that if I'm not perfect, I'm failing. So then it's like, even you are making great progress. If you can just keep doing this, despite not being perfect, you can get like exactly where you want to go. That like thought that like, well, I fucked up. It was a terrible week and shit. Now it was another terrible week. 
And it's like, Hey, this isn't even actually attached. Like you're progressing towards the goal. I think that kills more people's progress than most anything else. Honestly, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think I encounter this very often because I am a perfectionist. And I think a lot of times people know how detail oriented I am. So they get attracted to me. And so often a lot of conversations I have with clients is surrounding their self-talk their ability to give themselves grace and also realizing that it it really is about chasing progression, not perfection. And often, I often say this statement that we cannot separate psychology from physiology. And really what I mean by that is our beliefs about things, whether they're positive or negative can really impact the way that our body responds. So for instance, there's oftentimes, as, as you gave an example, where a client will have high expectations for themselves, which I love. I love setting high standards. However, you can't just live and die by those standards, meaning if you don't hit 100% accuracy on your macros, on your training, on your steps, on your water intake, you're automatically a failure. There isn't, we have to get away from these dichotomies, you know, and dichotomizing good and bad. Same thing with food. Like when people look at food in these rigid contexts where it's good foods and bad foods, black and white kind of context around nutrition, we really need to look at everything as a spectrum. And I also often like utilizing the analogy of a dimmer switch. We turn things up when we're really trying to get strict and we're really trying to get, you say, shredded or really trying to get in the best shape of our lives. And then at higher stress periods in our lives where our physique goals are still a um, a priority of importance, but they're not our main priority. We turn down that dimmer switch and it's never an on and off switch. It's never, you know, I'm on the diet or I'm completely off the diet or I'm, I'm nailing my training or I'm not training at all. It should never be that drastic of a swing between things, but really within a lot of people, they swing between these pendulums and it's like from one extreme to the other, they're either spot on and nailing it and expecting perfection of themselves, or they fall off or they feel like they failed. So they get in the exact opposite direction. They suffer from the, what the hell effect is. They say, listen, I didn't nail it. I was 90% of my nutrition this week. So fuck it. You know, uh, you know, I might as well just eat this, or I might as well just, you know, have this treat or whatever it may be. And they catastrophize themselves. And really we have to realize that our psychology can play such a massive role in, in our drive and our motivating factors, and also our ability to show up and execute again. So if you constantly, you know, put this thought into your mind that if you're not perfect, it's not worth it. You're going to, your actions are going to reinforce that. Meaning if you continue to strive for perfection and you realize it's not attainable, and I'm, I'm going to be honest with all of you, it's not, you know, I've been a competitor on the national level stage. I've worked with pros. No one has hit a hundred percent each day, week in, week out, month in, month out, year after year. There's just, it, there's not a perfect human being and we can't expect that. So none of you should expect that. However, if you always have that as the standard that you hold yourselves to and you continually come short, eventually you're just going to say, this isn't worth it. So you're going to go in the exact opposite direction. I'd rather have someone that's just consistently good and they're consistently aiming towards progression. So say they're 80% on most of the time and every week they're trying to get 1% better. So over the course of say a 20 week mesocycle, they're, they're really trying to get say a half percent better. They're trying to get to 90%. I'd rather have that than somebody be hundred percent for 10 weeks and then burn out the rest and be 50% for the next 10 weeks. And so when it really comes down to it, it's the law of repeated bouts over time or repeated efforts over time. And just being as consistently, um, you know, or doing as consistently well as we can without setting expectations so high that we'll never be able to attain them. It's great to have big goals, but we also have to realize that we're human beings, we're fallible creatures, and that we shouldn't expect perfection of any of us or of any other people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's very easy to like listen to podcasts, um, look at people you follow on social media and only show like, hey, these are the things that are going well. Or like if you follow competitors or someone that's been like, I feel like I think both of our lives are essentially set up largely around like the fitness and the business side of things, right? To me, but if you're 
a mom, you have kids, you have all these other lifestyle stressors going on. It's like such a different context. And like, uh, I just think it's important to take all that with a grain of salt as well. But yeah, man, I think you put that perfectly. Cool. Awesome, brother. All right. That's what we have as far as questions. Um, Before I let you go, anything else going on with you that you want to talk about? Anything else you want to plug? No, everything's uh, good on my end, but um, only thing is guys, please feel free. We are putting out weekly uh, episodes on chasing clarity. If you guys have not checked out my podcast, please do so. Uh, I've been getting a lot of good feedback on it, but definitely just want to continue the growth and um, any listeners of living lean, I'm sure you would love my podcast. So that's the chasing clarity health and fitness podcast. Absolutely. And I will link that up in the show notes as well. Well, as always, man, thank you for being here and we will catch everybody next time.